Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. The opportunity to be in their lives is a blessing for me. And it really has turned into something that doesn't feel like any level of sacrifice at all, but a tremendous joy. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm a CASA volunteer, a court-appointed special advocate for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know it's a mouthful. In the same way a CASA works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Sometimes you meet someone that is just so driven, so accomplished, so learned, so well-spoken, so wow, that it's just mind-boggling. Well, that's my guest, Wendy Julian. She's all that and a bag of chips. Hi, so I'm here with Wendy Julian. Hello, hello. Wendy Julian, hello. Good morning. So I want to thank you for doing this. I know that you're super, super busy. Um, and I know that you're also on your way to a new job, right? That is correct. These are exciting times. Yeah. Is it happening like tomorrow or <laughs> are you just waiting? I've got or? two weeks. Exactly. Two weeks from tomorrow is my last day. All right. Great. So now that I have you, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to pump you for information. Okay. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you are raised? Absolutely. So I'm from Northern Arizona, uh, Flagstaff to be specific. And I grew up with one sister and two parents who were both educators, which was an incredible opportunity. My father is an outdoorsman uh, by all means, which is part of the reason he loves living in Northern Arizona and uh, was a Boy Scout troop leader and a great adventurer. So as a child, I had summers off with my parents and got to travel to all 50 states and our Bronco to uh, camp sometimes on six-week adventures, getting to Ouch. see the country. Was, <laughs> I remember one time in Vermont, my mom put her foot down and said we were staying in a hotel because it was raining. She said, I'm not putting the tent up. <laughs> but but uh, other than that, we were, we were camping and I grew up with a, just a beautiful experience with my parents being real social justice-oriented activists in their education world. Uh, Both were teachers on the Navajo and Hopi nations, and my dad later became an attorney and did a lot of work in legal aid with the tribal nations in Arizona. So I, I grew up in this social justice world and learning and knowing how to play my part in making the community a better place. I often just say I was born into this work, but really I was taught every day of my childhood um, and had a, a really safe and secure experience growing up. You know, with teachers, we weren't going to Bermuda. We were driving in our Bronco, you know, to New Mexico, but um, but certainly a, a privileged 
childhood in every way. Uh, And then I had the opportunity for learning as a teenager about the real world. And I did that through um, the experience in the high school that I went to. I went to the high school where my mom was the principal, which was an urban high school in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, her theory was if the school wasn't good enough for her kids, it wasn't good enough. And uh, and I really appreciated that beautiful uh, sentiment. And I think have tried to make that true in the rest of my life that we need to make all of our systems good enough for our own children. And if we treated all of our children the way we want our own children to be treated, we'd have a really different community. I also was introduced to foster care in an informal way as a child and teenager, especially with um, kids coming in and out of our home, especially one who was one of my friends who stayed for quite a while at my house because her home situation was unlivable. And it was just felt normal. Uh, My parents really normalized that as understanding that I had an extra bed in my room and we had plenty of food. So why wouldn't we open our doors to someone else who needed support? And uh, that certainly set me on the path for what I'm doing now. Right. So that uh, friend of yours, was she not at home because she was unhappy there or because she was abused there? It was a very unsafe environment for her. Um, I I don't ever talk about it because it's her story, not mine. Uh, But What I will say about her is um, she was an 11-time state champion, uh, cross-country and track runner, absolutely one of the most phenomenally talented athletes I've ever known. And she was just a really normal kid. And the fact that she was living through extraordinarily difficult things that no child should live through and still laughing and eating spaghetti and performing as an athlete, I think really taught me a lot about resilience and strength and gratitude for my own life and my willingness to share that with others. You know, I might have mentioned to you that, um, and hopefully by the time this airs, I will have a title for my book and the podcast, but I've really been searching for a title because I know that a lot of the kids who've spent time in care, they don't want to be thought of as at-risk kids or kids that are problem children or ones that are going to get in trouble eventually. And my experience has been actually of the kids that I have known who've spent time in foster care, they are resilient, they're adaptable, they're incredibly imaginative, they're resourceful, really often way more than kids that that don't have the challenges that they have. Have you seen that to be true too? I have, absolutely. I mean, the young people that I've met who have spent time in foster care and are currently in foster care are some of the most extraordinary, talented, strong young people I've met. I did learn something very important, I think, from uh, a young woman who is my friend now and a member of the board of directors of CASA. Her name is John A. Rivers. She's she's an all-star in every way. Uh, And uh, she responded to that question in a conversation we were having once that that's not the goal. Super strength and resilience in the face of trauma is not what children should experience ever. And I know that's not what you're saying, but I, I love thinking about that brilliant comment that she made, which is, yes, these young people are amazing. Still, we should absolutely try to prevent what they've gone through in every way and for every child. Wow. I I really appreciate that because 
I have had experience with kids in foster care probably for 25 years, but only recently through my involvement with Peace for Kids and then with CASA have I begun to actually know some of those kids really well. Um, So I'm learning about how to appreciate them, how to support them, how to position them too. And of course, what you're uh, what you said makes absolute sense. We need to nip it at the bud, right? Right. We need, it, it, it needs to not happen in the first place. But of course, how we do that is the, is the challenge, right? It is. There are some, some things that are less challenging than others though. And I think one of the big things that I've learned in these, these four and a half years at CASA, I mean, I've been involved in the foster care system in some way or another for almost two decades since I first became a foster parent officially. But I have learned that there are like two buckets of problems. One of those buckets that we talk about all the time are these major societal issues, things like poverty and racism and um, the housing crisis and violence, including domestic violence and child abuse, substance abuse, big, wicked difficult to solve community problems. And those are issues we are working on at CASA. The county is working on everybody. I think there are lots of lots of folks working to improve those systems. But man, they are they're tough, tough to address and have to be big systematic things to address. Unfortunately, I think those issues get lumped in with another bucket of issues, which are what people usually describe in the uh, metaphor that I hate the most, uh, children slipping through the cracks. Uh, That is, I man, if I could get rid of one thing in child welfare, it would be that statement. Because the other bucket is what happens once a child is identified as needing support and is in the foster care system. And the fact that our kids have multiple placements, huge turnover in their therapists, unsafe caregiver foster placements, are living in group homes, are having to stay in probation halls and camps because there aren't placements for them. All of those things are homeless when they age out. I mean, my God, like who are we as a community, really? Um, Those are solvable problems. Those are not wicked problems. We know how to fix those problems. And I don't think there's any excuse at all not to fund and create the resources and have the people who can solve those. And I want to keep those buckets separate. Wow. So you don't feel overwhelmed by that bucket or those buckets at all. You think those are all solvables? I I don't think they're overwhelming at all. I mean, how hard is it to make sure that every 21-year-old aging out of foster care is housed? We have plenty of money for that in in our county and in our country. It's about priorities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So you are a mom, you have biological children, you've been a foster... Uh, parent, you and you've also adopted one of the the, the girls. That's Angela. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's a, if I need to strike that name, that's fine. By the nope, way, totally okay. fine. Also, she's an adult now. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So tell me about about that. About how you decided. Okay, I'm doing this. And this was before you worked at Casa because you're also Casa as right. well as the CEO of Casa. So. 
Can you track me that, please? Yeah, it's a it's a very clear path. So um, I always wanted to have a big family um, when I was even a kid. And I got married when I was 19 and had my uh, two oldest kids when I was uh, 21 and 22. So that was a little wild and not something I would recommend. Um, although wow. <laughs> they're really fabulous humans. I love them so much. I can't imagine my life without them, but ooh, that was tough. So, um, so then I took a break <laughs> to go to school and try to work and um, have some sanity and uh, always wanted to have four. That was the plan with their dad. And so we planned on thinking about adopting. So that was the plan from the beginning. Then I had this incredible experience of becoming a foster parent. It was by accident in some ways. So a young woman that I loved, that was my mentee, who I'd had a relationship with through work where I was doing a lot of gang intervention and human relations and on-campus dialogue with teenagers who had been involved in conflicts. Um, And I met her, got to know her, and then one day uh, found out that she was going to be taken away from her grandmother's custody and put into a group home um, if she couldn't find a placement. Uh, And it was only because her grandmother had lost her uh, her housing situation. So this was a temporary need, and uh, it was a pretty easy decision to bring her in. So um, she was 15. My uh, my older kids, I think, were maybe. Uh, maybe seven and eight, they were much younger. And it was an opportunity for me to just provide her a safe place while she reunited with her sister and her her grandmother quickly. Um, And it was a loving, caring situation on all ends, no no controversy at all. So um, what I didn't expect was what I was going to learn about the foster care system during that time. And um, I remember having a conversation with my ex-husband, like, you know, it was so great to get to be in her life when she was 15. Can you imagine if we had been in her life when she was five? That was the, that was the conversation we had. And so um, when we went back to the table to get our foster um, license and think about adoption, we decided we would um, adopt an older sibling set. That was the plan. So um, as happens often, we got our license and like the next day had a recommendation for a placement and it was one girl, which is funny because um, I have all nieces. I now have one baby nephew, but um, at that time there were no boys in the family except my son. And we thought we'd adopt a sibling set, but at least one of them would be a boy. So the recommendation we got was not a boy and not a sibling set. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is so <laughs> difficult. <laughs> um, but uh, the first day that we, well, we actually decided we're we're not going to meet her and audition her for this role as our foster daughter. Um, we're going to go and have made the decision already before we meet her. And um, it was whoa, a- Whoa, 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 wait. So, so, yeah. So once you said, you decided if we say yes, it's yes, no matter yes. what. She had been in 10 placements between the age of two and a half and five and a half, three years, oh, 10 placements. And yeah, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to do that again. So, so I said yes before meeting her and uh, yeah, it's like an arranged marriage sort of yeah. <laughs> that turned out. I can't even explain how it turned out. <laughs> um, she, I cannot imagine my life without her. Um, I don't know what what you grew up with your sibling situation, but with four kids, there are a lot of funny jokes that happen where they all claim that someone is the favorite 
Yeah. Yep. And uh, I tell her very clearly that she's the favorite because she's the only one I got to choose. And (laughs) the other kids think that's funny. (laughs) I also didn't have to change any diapers. Just a lot of good Mm. things. Mm. (laughs) Didn't gain any weight. (laughs) So many good things. (laughs) But um, it was a tremendous challenge. And I, I don't want to make it seem like this is some kind of fairy tale because it wasn't. And I needed a lot of help and support from my family, my friends, from professionals, from therapists and psychologists. And 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 that work continues and will continue for the rest of our lives as, uh, as mother, as daughter, and in our relationship together. And it has been just extraordinary. So I, you know, I learned, I got to go to court um, you know, I have beautiful pictures from her adoption day right outside the CASA offices, which is so ironic. Um, um, but it, it really changed the course of my life, that that experience and understanding that you can love a child that you um, didn't know until she was five years old, absolutely as much as the child that uh, you had biologically. Right. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day and I said, you know, if only if say there's 600, 650,000 kids in the United States that are in or have spent time in foster care at any one time. And all we need is a half a million people to step up and say, I'll take care of that kid. And I, right. I you know, I can love that kid. I can give that kid a home. And most people don't do that. Mm-hmm. They and don't I even think it. about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's so many good reasons not to do it. Right. But talking to you, it sounds like there's just so many good reasons to do it. So many, right? Right. Well, that's what I say about even recruitment of CASAs is that getting over that hump of, okay, I'm going to do this is so hard. But once you start the experience and build this relationship with a child, I think it becomes so much less hard. And I, I remember having a conversation, I think it was with a with a reporter many years ago, but still I'd been in this relationship with my former foster daughter for about 10 years. And uh, he said something like, um, how do you keep up the motivation and the energy to maintain your relationship with her? And I laughed and I thought, wow, it takes zero effort because I love her. You know, this it's not a, oh, I got to call her <laughs> kind of an obligation thing. Um, it, it really is about that human loving connection that can be built with somebody over a very short amount of time and doesn't have to be based on family relationships. Yeah, you know, that's really true. I've discovered that for myself when I, and I've, I've talked about this before in the podcast, but I was filled with trepidation when I was in training and I... Uh, I wasn't really sure if I was cut out for it, and I, 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 I had all those fears. Like, is my kid going to like me? Am I going to be any good at it? Am I going to fall apart? Is it going to be something I can't handle and I need to drop out, which I, I was loath to do. So, but then, of course, as soon as I engaged with the little girl, I was immediately one hundred percent in, and that has stayed that way even through the times that have been a little bit difficult, even when there's been miscommunications between us or when there's times when I'm not really even sure what to do or, or, or how to help her or even how to communicate well with her. I, I just kind of dig around a little bit and then something shows up and then it changes again and we're back on. I, I mentioned that she said the other day, 
I'm the only foster kid. I'm, I'm, I'm the only kid. I'm, you know, there's only me. I don't even know why my mother and father had me. They didn't even love me. They're not even together. They're not even together. And, and, uh, and, you know, I, I, and, I, and I'm, and I'm a foster kid. I'm the only one. And I had explained to her, and even though she knows it, you know, intellectually, that there are many, many, many children like her that don't come from the family that you see on television, that everybody has challenges and you don't really necessarily know what they are by just looking at the person. And I'm hoping that that's going to stay with her because now she's wrestling. She's at that point where she's wondering why she is in the spot that she's in and very difficult for kids. It is. And I think that, you know, all children go through challenges and everybody has self-doubt and there are some things that are so normal about that kind of questioning. And then also there's so many things that are hard to explain from your perspective as a CASA or from a community perspective, like why really some of our kids are going through things that no child should ever have to go through. I mean, this concept of moving from placement to placement, I don't think we talk enough about it because it's hugely traumatic. It's horrific. So traumatic. Yeah, Yeah. and I, I don't think people, the average person has any idea what happens to these kids. They think they they go into foster care, they they find a happy home or not, and then they get adopted, and then that's it. But that's not the way it works. Not at all. Not at all. And and that's that's what I'm talking about about that bucket of things that we have control over. You know, if we know something's inflicting trauma on a kid. We need to stop it. If the if we the county we the you know the 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 community are doing it, it has to be stopped. I, I remember um, somebody asking me a question when the the whole issue about kids in cages at the border came up, and uh, that was my response: is this is the federal government intentionally inflicting trauma on children? And if you had the federal government beating children physically, you know, there would be such tremendous outcry. But scientifically speaking, inflicting trauma by separating them from their parents and putting them in a cage is the same thing. It maybe is even worse because physical wounds heal. Those wounds around inflicting trauma can have lifelong medical and and mental health consequences that are really difficult to undo. And we we just we got to stop inflicting trauma on our kids and you know, it's it's um it sounds like such a simple thing to say, but there are ways we know how to stop doing it. And I, I think the state and the county have an obligation to do more. And a lot of that costs money. And where you budget your resources shows what your priorities are. And if we really prioritize our kids, we would make sure that they had the services they needed. Right. I was reading somewhere recently that uh, the state or the county will pay approximately $40,000 for someone to take care of a, a kid from foster care. Why isn't that money given to the biological family to help them take care of the kid and give them services in order to keep the kid, in order to not have that kid taken away from them because it's not all people always think it's always abuse but as we know it's really more often neglect and far far more often far more often right and that and that actual neglect could be a single mom who's got three jobs who leaves a kid at home because she has no choice right Absolutely. Or who needs substance abuse treatment or who is herself a victim of domestic violence. I mean, these stories are so nuanced and the 
idea of shaming and hating parents in the scenario is completely unhelpful because so often the parents are doing everything they possibly can and just really lack the supportive services that they need. Mm-hmm. Many times they were in foster care themselves. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, right. So what do you think about the CASA program now that you've been the CEO and you, you're also CASA? Um, will you continue being a CASA, you think, after? Because you're going into a pretty heavy hitting, like another heavy hitting job. So I will... I will definitely continue being a CASA. You couldn't rip me away from the young man I advocate for. He matters so much to me. And even when his case closes, uh, I would like to continue to be a CASA. And I feel like it's pretty pretty doable to um, to continue even with a challenging career. You know, there was a guy in my CASA training class who is the head of uh, nursing at Cedar sinais NICU. <laughs> and I thought, wow. okay, wow. zero zero excuses from me. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, my friend Audrey Handelman is an architect with Gensler, just a tremendously challenging job that she has Mm -hmm. there. You know, there are so many examples of people who are doing a lot. You know, uh, my friend Ashwarya, who has a little child at home. (laughs) All of of the Mm -hmm. excuses that people make, there are so many examples of people making it work. So yes, I will stay as a CASA. Because I really believe in this program and I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying about my childhood maybe is um, I remember in my former job, uh, which was at the California Conference for Equality and Justice, I had the opportunity to learn a lot about restorative justice and uh, implement some restorative justice programs in schools and in the juvenile justice system. And I worked with some amazing facilitators there and they classify their work as something called human relations. And that sounds like a kumbaya kind of a thing in many ways. But in fact, I think it is the profound answer to a lot of our societal issues, which is the notion that if you deeply and genuinely get to know someone and their circumstances and their story, it's very difficult not to empathize with them and not to understand where they're coming from and not to break down stereotypes and discrimination and prejudice. And I think that is absolutely true in the child welfare system that um, everybody says it's complicated and they're right, that when you get involved in a child's life and you meet their parents and you meet their caregivers and you meet the people on their team, you really get a sense what has gone into this child getting into foster care to begin with and learn that it's deeply complicated. It's not a one-off thing that happened one bad night. It's a, a series of issues that have been sometimes generational in their family and um, often are related to profound injustices like people being incarcerated for so many years for things that were really rehabilitatable and minor in some cases. And, um, and then just situations where young people haven't had the opportunity to thrive in the way they should. So that human connection between a CASA volunteer and the child, I think is just, it's amazing and incredible. And because of all the confidentiality restrictions, there isn't really another way to do that. You know, there are lots of great mentoring organizations, but it's hard to 
have access to the real information that can help make a difference. And that makes the CASA program tremendously unique and special. And I just wish that every child who needed one could have a CASA. That's the fact in a lot of counties in California. And uh, and I wish it were the case in Los Angeles as well. You know, I didn't even know about the CASA program for, you know, for years and years, not until I was at Peace for Kids. And somebody mentioned, I think somebody said, oh, he's a CASA. And I thought, well, I wonder what what does that mean? Or whatever, what casa? And then I met the kid who who had this guy who was a casa. I met that young man, and that young man was just astounding. I, I was just entranced. He was like a he had a face like an old African king, and he was like sixteen years old. And then I asked the guy, so what do you mean you're his casa? What does that mean? And he explained to me a little bit, but really didn't give me a whole lot of information. And then I started researching, okay, what is a casa? Could I be a casa? Could I, could I do that? And initially, I actually wanted to talk my boyfriend into, into doing it with me. I thought, um, you know, if he does it with me, then, then it'll be cool. And then maybe we can get, you know, a family, um, a sibling set maybe, and then we can do the work together. And he basically said to me, there's no way I can ever do that. And I, and I thought, wow, I wonder. And he said, yeah, when I know what happens to some of these kids, I want to kill their parents. And he's not the kind of guy that you think that would come from. But I think what he was really saying is that it's so disturbing to me what happens to small children that I don't think I can handle it. Now, funny enough, part of the training was, as you know, mm-hmm. they they want to make sure that you have somebody at home that can help you, that can be supportive for you, for the kind of work that you're going to encounter as a CASA, that you need a supportive environment to help you get through it. And he has been that for me very, very much. So even though he's not a CASA, he has helped me every step of the way. And I, of course, I thought to myself, well, what if I didn't have him? Would I be calling my mom all the time or my sisters or, 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 you know, I don't know. I actually talked to a lot of Casa friends from my training class and others because there is a little bit of how am I going to do this? What's happening? Especially at, at, at the very beginning. And I don't know if you felt this way, but I thought, well, what does that mean? How does that work? Who, who, why is it that way? Why, why has she had four caseworkers? Why have there been four attorneys? Why are there three, three placements in, in two years? You know, all that stuff that we as CASAs face. And yet you got to plow through it, right, to figure out. Um, in fact, there's a very uh, a great quote from you, and I think this is about your CASA work, but maybe about your work in general. You say, this is not a smooth road and not for the faint of heart, but it is the most rewarding path I could imagine walking. Can you tell me about that? Absolutely. You know, I, um, at one point, my former, my former foster daughter, my mentee, and I were talking about doing a TED Talk. I think everybody's talked about that. And <laughs> we were going to call the TED Talk and then maybe write a book called uh, Do Hard Things. But I, I think that is, that's what I mean by that quote is that um, this, this isn't easy. It's, it's not easy, but nothing ventured, nothing gained. It's, that's a, that's a very true concept and that you have to be strong in areas where it doesn't feel like being strong, but you do it for someone else. And I, I think that as humans, we all have that ability. And I think it it's something that comes naturally to us. And sometimes we 
turn off for our own self-protection. And uh, I'd love to see more people turn it on because it's a risk. And I mean, I've made mistakes in this venture as the CASA volunteer. And oh my gosh, as a foster mom and adoptive mom made huge mistakes, but so much better for me to have been there than not. And, uh, and the, the end result ends up being a better outcome for another human being. So it, it feels like the mistakes are okay in some ways. I will say, just to totally agree with you, I mean, I've been doing this a long time and had challenging scenarios, but as a CASA, um, I can think of one scenario in particular where um, I got fired. <laughs> The kid fired you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not that can for, happen. Not for anything I did. Um, it was something really bad that happened in her life. This is my my previous case. Um, just terrible. And she called me right after it happened, um, probably for support, but also to say, um, so she was a non-minor dependent to say she wanted to be out of foster care. She didn't want to ever talk to me again or her attorney again or her social worker again. And she was just going to run away and be gone. And uh, that was at about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was obviously profoundly concerned about her safety and her mental health. And, you know, I called my supervisor at CASA, my, uh, who's, you know, it's funny because I'm the CEO and this is, she's my supervisor, but she's way, smart, way <laughs> smarter than me. Has <laughs> been dealing with this for a long time. And she said, okay, first take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. You have a lot of rapport, long time relationship with her. She's a pretty stable young woman in general. And so this is what we're going to do. It's 10 a.m. You're going to wait until 5 p.m. Control yourself. And at 5 p.m., you're going to send her a text and you're going to say, I love you. I'm here. I'd be happy to talk about what happened. I want to know where you're going to stay tonight. What's going on? So I sent that message at five o'clock and she responded and she said, oh, you know, this was so terrible and I was so scared and I don't want to leave. I, you know, I want to, I want to just be safe and, you know, I want to make a plan for when I'm out, <laughs> but I, thank God for my supervisor. Like, she knew the right thing to do. And I had the support that I needed to do it in a situation that I may have made a really big mistake by like pushing too hard. Cause that I think tends to be my reaction is I want to go and fix things. Right. Right. You want to fix it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, and that was, so it's definitely the right advice, but my, my point is, is that CASA volunteers have, it's so important to have the support at home, especially the emotional support and the day-to-day support, but also the support of super smart, supervisors on staff who've been, you know, they've seen a million different cases. So they have a lot of perspective on it. And that that makes it, it a lot easier to do. Yeah, that's been my experience as well, that the supervisors are really, really great. The staff is really, really great. And one good thing about COVID, the one, one good thing is that um, there's been the opportunity for all this online training, Mm -hmm. uh, virtual training, which really didn't happen in the same way before you could, there was training available, but not stuff every week about things that maybe for me, I I often do training that has nothing to do with my case thinking, well, I might have a case down the road, or I just want to know this because it gives me a fuller picture of everything that's going on. Yeah, it's been amazing. And we've learned a lot because of the immediate pivot to all online training and the pre-service training, the in-service training, and uh, learn that there are some things that are actually better 
because of Zoom, as you're saying, because they're more inclusive and more people can join and it encourages people to continue their learning. Uh, we In September of 2020, we actually um, had double the number of applications that we had in September of 2019. And I think the reason for that is that people that we've we've eliminated one of the obstacles, which is, you know, driving to children's court. So um, it's kind of cool how that technology is helping. And, you know, there are also some, of course, really big downsides. I mean, I've seen my my kid um, three times since March Mm. and I miss him so much and I really wish I could go see him, but he lives with his grandmother and I'm not willing to risk that for her. So it really is more about protecting him than protecting me even um, with the visits. But I, there's something to be said for those face-to-face visits. That is something I'm really looking forward to changing um, as people get vaccinated and it's safer to do the in-person visits. Yeah. You know, I've had, um, I've had some real challenges with my kid um, in our communication via FaceTime because I, she doesn't really give as good FaceTime as I wish she did. <laughs> she's like all over the room. And then a lot of times she's just like sending me emojis and I'm trying to have a conversation with her. And she's like, wait, hold, hold, hold. And then she plays a video and, you know, but, it, but so far we've kind of worked it out. So um, can you tell me about, so what's this next job you're going to? What, what yeah, is It's so exciting. So, um, so, Before CASA, my involvement in child welfare was really personal, uh, just as a foster parent, adoptive parent. Uh, My career has been built on uh, community organizing and criminal justice reform in a lot of different ways, including um, a lot of preventative work, gang intervention work, and uh, restorative justice work, but in general, hoping to be able to change policies. Um, That's the reason I went to law school. I went to law school um, 10 years out of college after I'd worked as a an organizer for um, for a decade, and um, I went thinking that I hoped I would be able to take what I had learned, knowing real people and real stories, and turn that into policy that works better for people. And there's one story I remember from before I went to law school that I think defines so much of this. There was this young man; I think he was 19, so he's an adult. Um, his name's Charles. And um, he was in my program and he came to me to ask me for help because he had warrants that wouldn't allow him to uh, get a driver's license and he had a job offer and also wanted to go to college. So I took a look at his warrants and took them to the city attorney. And I mean, it sounds like I'm making this up, but he owed thousands of dollars in fees and fines related to his bench warrants. And it was all based on one original ticket, which was for speeding on his bicycle. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, because I'm a smart ass, <laughs> I was like, wow, how fast are you going? <laughs> 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 I'm laugh, laughing about it to what is a really not funny situation. Um, fortunately, in this case, the city attorney agreed and we were able to clean everything up and get his record clear and uh, and figure it out so he could move forward with his life. But, you know, he had he had me. Right. He had you. So 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 the, the very fact that you had the ability to say, I'm going to have a look at this and I'm going to take it to the city attorney and I'm going to have, I'm I'm going to make sure someone else looks at this and hopefully sees it the way that I do. 
So, so the new job is as the executive director of the Probation Oversight Commission. So this is a brand new role. Uh, the commission is also new. There, there is a probation commission, but that is sunsetting this month. And um, the new Probation Oversight Commission is quite different. It's actually unique in the nation. Uh, it's a nine-member civilian commission appointed by the Board of Supervisors with the direct task of overseeing probation reform in the county. Uh, there is uh, extraordinary work that's gone into building this that um, has set out specific goals, which include things like closing down juvenile halls and camps, especially right. in their current format, right. and also separating out juvenile probation from adult probation, acknowledging that the response to a crime committed by a child, anyone under 18, a child under our laws should be extraordinarily different than the response for someone who is of the age of majority. Uh, that's, of course, something I strongly support but also integrating restorative justice and transformative justice for adults. And uh, I'm very excited about that because um, I happen to love adults too, <laughs> not, not just, just children. Kids. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so many adults who are in the probation system, the criminal justice system in general, have also experienced really severe trauma in their childhoods and in their young adulthoods and adulthoods. And so the idea that we would build a probation system that is built on restoration and rehabilitation um, is really exciting to me. So um, I'll be a facilitator in many ways, not have, um, you know, it won't be my vision, my control over the reform efforts, but rather me leading this um, probation oversight commission to make those things happen. But what's exciting is that the Probation Oversight Commission has been granted pretty significant power, including the ability to subpoena information, receive grievances, uh, do inspections. So the commission will have some authority that hasn't been invested in um, community leadership previously. And so um, it's kind of a magical moment to get to do in many ways what I've always dreamed of doing, which is see probation reform happen in Los Angeles County. Uh, and I'm really excited for what that means for our CASA kids who are what they call dual status or crossover kids who are both in foster care and in the juvenile justice system, um, as well as just putting families on the path to uh, repair and self-sufficiency and healing uh, in the way that, that I think we can. So, um, it's, you know, this is a, a really exciting time with the five supervisors um, being supportive of reform and the care first model that's been recommended uh, by Supervisor Kuehl and Mark Ridley Thomas, who is now on LA City Council. Um, and also a brand new probation chief. Uh, you know, there's a new momentum around the alternatives to incarceration office in the county. Uh, there is a, you know, a new... Um, Department of Equity and Racial Justice within the county, the Measure J that just passed. There's all this exciting momentum. And I just, I can't believe some days that I get to be a part of it. I'm, I'm really excited about it. So as I'm listening to you speak and knowing the work that you do and also seeing you a little bit at work, I, I, I'm just kind of in awe because not only it, you're just so accomplished you're so articulate about what you're doing and what you care about. And 
um, and also seems so driven and yet so approachable at the same time. What's going on with you? Do you have like a special <laughs> gene or, or like, what is that? I have a funny answer to that question. So my grandfather, Dan Julian, who uh, lives in Arizona, and uh, I mean, who gets to be 45 and have a grandfather that they can call and talk to? I am the luckiest person. Yeah. The luckiest person. He is a professor emeritus of speech. And um, I have been uh, corrected and coached and trained my entire life since I was probably 18 months old in my speech. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not my, it's not a reflection of my intelligence, but <laughs> a reflection of right. my it's trying just, to prove that I can do what my grandfather told me. <laughs> that's right. Just intense training, yes. intense training. Yes. Okay. So this leads me to what one thing or things about you is true that people would never know unless you told them. So I, that's interesting. You know, I think my parents did a really good job of helping me embrace just who I, who I am. And I appreciate that really so much because I, I would say that, um, in my experience working with people in my field and with academics and with people who are really accomplished, I don't see myself, uh, generally speaking, as you know someone who's an expert in anything. <laughs> if I'm an expert in anything, it would be human relations, what we were talking about before. And what that requires is basically listening with intention. So I'm not going to write a book probably ever. And uh, I'm also not going to run for political office probably ever <laughs> because um, I really like to be the convener. And you know, it's been interesting to be the head of CASA for four and a half years where I have to be the external voice and I'm the one who's giving the speeches and wearing the sequins and has the mic a lot. That's not actually what I love to do. And I think a lot of people think that. <laughs> um, I, I love to be behind the scenes and, uh, and that's sort of what I'm looking forward to in this new job is um, helping others succeed. Um, there is nothing that makes me happier than what I've been able to see in other people that my life has influenced. Um, and I'd much rather kind of just fade, <laughs> fade into the background. So, you know, I think in many ways I'm an, I'm an extrovert and people think I'm like the biggest extrovert they've ever met, but it's really not the case at all. I, I, uh, I would be totally happy. <laughs> totally happy to just, you know, read and sit on my couch. So that, that is so fascinating because I remember when I first saw you, I was just struck by, uh, first of all, you're very lovely to look at and, and so chic and so poised and so articulate and, and so welcoming. And you could tell just by everything going on in the room that the person in charge was you. Well, that's, so kind. You're so you're very sweet to say that. I appreciate yeah. it. Certainly no, not it was, to myself. <laughs> no, it was flat out. And I, I mean, I, I remember that it was, I think the first time when I ever was up close with you was at the conference in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, she's in charge. <laughs> and I remember talking to my boyfriend about it. And I said, and look how chic she is. <laughs> Look at, look at that dress she's wearing. Wow, she just looks fantastic. 
know, it's funny because I um I I actually kind of love fashion, but not like Paris fashion. Um, I love um outlandish fashion, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess mm-hmm. I would say. Um, in the sense that I'm not really a go-along kind of a person. Um, I think you and I have that in common. <laughs> yes. I, yes, I, I completely right. agree. Like, right. like if you think it's beautiful, you want to put it together on you so it's beautiful. You right. don't care whether it's on the cover of a magazine. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's funny. Yes. But I... I um, I do miss those parties. Um, I'm looking forward to them happening again soon because mostly because I just like meeting people. I mean, that's the the thing I get the most joy out of. And I, I think that's what's so wonderful about my career path is that it's sort of my job description is to, and that's true in the current job at CASA and the new job at the county is to uh, reach out and meet people and lift their voices up. So um, I'll be doing that in a different way, but uh, but still the same same role. If, uh, if you could say something um, to people that are thinking about either fostering a kid or um, adopting a kid or, or becoming a CASA, what, what would you say? I would say that there are so many things that we do in our lives that are difficult and Many of them take us to places that we try to avoid or get out of. And I think everybody has a sense of difficulties in their childhood, even people like me who had a really beautiful comparatively childhood, especially to the young people I'm working with. Um, there are things that were difficult and and challenges. And that that's why I like that concept of doing hard things because it's sort of like climbing a mountain. You know, you when you are doing it, when you're looking at it from the bottom, it seems so unachievable. And then you get to the top and it's like, oh my gosh, why don't I do this every weekend? Um, that is sort of how I feel about my role as a foster parent, adoptive parent, as a CASA, is that I'm not perfect at it. I screw up a lot. I don't do enough. That's my my biggest regret always is that I wish I could do more. But um, my intervention as the flawed human being that I am um, is so much better than nothing. And uh, that's the case for everybody. <laughs> so uh, I think that it's all about the decisions that we make in in life and how we decide to challenge ourselves. And that sometimes you challenge yourself in a way that the payoff is really greater than you can ever imagine. So uh, whether that be really making a lifelong difference in the life of a child or doing something that changes the environment or um, getting involved in a way that is promoting health for people. There's so many different ways to do good uh, and it makes you feel more human. I mean, I, you know, I have heard a lot of stories about people wanting to find a sense of purpose and, you know, there are books written about it. There are a bazillion podcasts about it. And, um, I can't really think of what that purpose looks like other than generating something that makes the makes the world around me a better place. So whether, you know, sometimes I guess that could be through art and beauty, um, but a lot of times that's through just caring relationships with other humans and who better to care for than a really cute kid. So um, whether they be nine or 19, <laughs> they're, they're all really cute. And, and the, uh, the opportunity to be in their lives is a blessing for me. 
and it really has turned into something that doesn't feel like any level of sacrifice at all, but a tremendous joy. And I've found that sense of purpose and I feel really lucky about it because I don't have to question what my purpose is. I mean, my purpose is like spending my extra time hanging out with a kid who sends me funny emojis. I love that you said that about yours because mine does that all the time. <laughs> uh, and it's it's just, it's beautiful to know that he has my number and can call me if something goes wrong. And um, every kid should have that. And it's, it's really not that hard. So um, the end of my TED talk about the do hard things <laughs> was going to be to turn it over to uh, my mentee who grew up in foster care to say, actually, this thing that I've done is really not hard at all. So <laughs> I should probably rename my portion of my TED talk to like do sort of not easy things. <laughs> <laughs> Doing hard things is what our kids do. Living through abuse and neglect, um, moving from house to house, worrying about where you're going to live. Uh, that's what's hard. Being a volunteer is like rewarding. Wow. All right. Well, listen, thank you. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to appreciate that because I feel that way myself. I really, I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, Jane Amelia. This is such a wonderful concept that you have here to share your care for others with uh, with other people. It's beautiful. Thank you for including me. Woohoo! So Wendy Julian really is making the world around her a better place. And she's doing it with intention. She really is doing it. And she makes it seem like anybody can do it. If you just want to, you just decide to, you just do it. And it's not that hard. Yeah, I told you, she's all that and a bag of chips. If you see something, say something. If you suspect that a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. I want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful music, Eferisto. To hear more of her music, go to Spotify and Instagram at Christina Apostol. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-A-P-O-S-T-O. I know you want to. Her stuff is really great. And thanks to my audio producer extraordinaire, Marcos Campito. I'm glad I found you. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, please rate us and hit subscribe. <laughs>